Welcome to Claim Stories, actual accounts of professional liability claims against Ontario licensed architects, chosen from the 6,000 or so cases defended by ProDemnity Insurance Company. The ProDemnity Claim Stories were originally written by David Croft. The stories are factual, but some elements have been altered to protect the identity of all parties involved, the guilty as well as the innocent. Architectural practice, it seems, can be far more exciting than most people imagine. But in architecture, as in life, the wrong kind of excitement can be perilous. At a glance, these two claim stories might seem very different. The first one involves physical injury to a third party, a humble, retired octogenarian. The second involves emotional injury to a client, a self-important religious leader. But the stories share two important features. They both result from a chain of events initiated by the desire for a grand architectural gesture, and they both show the dire results of inattention to detail. Be wary of extravagance. It may be expensive in ways you can't imagine. In this story, an elderly woman loses her footing and tumbles down some stairs at a shopping center. She sues the architect of record, but the design architect and the local building official are soon involved in the legal action. Each defendant insists upon their innocence and blames the other defendants, as well as the unfortunate injured 84-year-old plaintiff. With apologies to another octogenarian, Margaret Atwood, we call this story The Handrail's Tale. Mrs. Gubbins needed some x-rays, so she had her son drop her off at the Mega Mall, the large regional shopping center where the Cure-All Medical Clinic had an office on the second floor. Following instructions, she had fasted for 24 hours and then consumed an uncomfortable quantity of barium. Exiting the clinic a few hours later, Mrs. Gubbins wasn't sure how to get to the elevator, so she made her way to the main staircase an extravagant architectural creation in the style of a Hollywood musical. The stair, located near the main entry water fountain, featured three curved steps ascending to a curved landing. Going up the stairs was a theatrical experience. Going down the stairs was also dramatic, but trickier, since the handrails followed the sweep of the curved treads and plunged artistically away from the direction of travel, making them next to useless. That morning, Mrs. Gubbins descended the staircase. When she reached those last three steps, with the main door directly ahead of her, she let go of the handrail. Lacking the necessary support, she missed her footing on the first curved tread and lurched forward, falling and sliding the rest of the way, badly fracturing her hip. Her claim was modest. Mrs. Gubbins needed some financial help to look after her physical needs. She did not include any amounts for pain and suffering in her claim, although she must have endured a considerable amount of both. Mrs. Gubbins based her case on the fact that the carpet pattern was confusing, so it was hard to see the steps. In addition, someone from the clinic should have escorted her to the elevator and not left her to her own devices. And, as noted, the handrail was out of reach. As a result of her injury, Mrs. Gubbins was now wheelchair-bound, so she needed help getting around, and alterations to her home needed to be made. 
Furthermore, as she sadly confessed, her only interest left in life was playing the organ at her church. But that pleasure was gone. The organ loft was at the top of a winding staircase, and stairs of any kind were no longer an option for Mrs. Gubbins. Her claim was for an extremely modest amount, even though she was living alone on an old-age pension and could not afford home care or home alterations. Her chances of recovery were limited by her age, and she was facing the prospect of ending her days in a wheelchair. In its own defense, the clinic denied that there was anything improper in Mrs. Gubbins' release. They felt that she was more than capable of getting home unaided. The shopping center claimed that the staircase had been used by thousands of people, young and old, and they could see nothing wrong with the bottom steps. However, if the court should decide that there was something wrong with the stairs, it couldn't be blamed on them. It would certainly be the fault of the architects who designed them that way and the building inspectors who approved them. The architect of record said that they were contracted to do the working drawings as well as performing contract administration and reviewing the work in progress. The staircase had been built according to the design drawings. The last three steps and the handrail details were based on instructions received directly from the design architect. Their claim that they were just following orders seemed reasonable since they were a small partnership of local folks operating in a small town, whereas the design architects were a well-known big city firm. Furthermore, the design architects had reviewed the shop drawings and the work on site, so they had ample opportunity to notice anything that might look like a code error. For their part, the design architects believed that the law was on their side. After all, code matters were the responsibility of the architect of record. It was the local firm's job, they believed, to review the design for code conformity and correct any violations on any document. Also, their design was schematic. The stair had been illustrated only in a perspective drawing. And as everyone knows, perspectives are not to be taken literally. Furthermore, there was nothing confusing about the carpet design and the handrail could have been held onto, even though it would have meant turning away from the direction of travel. The building official, for his part, pointed out that this was a small town and he could hardly be expected to second-guess big city professionals. He had relied completely on the architect's drawings. As the matter proceeded, lawyers for both sides were settling in for the fight. But sad to say, time was on the defendant's side. Mrs. Gubbins could not afford a protracted legal battle. Her daughter, a school teacher, was paying the legal bills, and funds were limited. Her lawyer appealed for a settlement. Pro-Demnity's counsel presented the standard defenses. Mrs. Gubbins was under the influence of medication. She had bad eyesight. She wore ill-fitting shoes. She was also not being careful, and so on. What's more, it had been her choice to take the long stairs down and reject the elevator. So it was contributory negligence at the very least. In circumstances such as these, prodemnity finds this sort of defense quite distasteful. But there are legal imperatives to be observed, and architects have a right to a strong defense in accordance with their policy. So to us, it was beginning to look like, out of all the parties involved, and especially between our two policyholders, the design architects might have had the least exposure. But the matter was at an impasse, and so the process dragged on through discoveries. 
It should have been clear in the discovery of Mrs. Gubbins that the defendants were unlikely to win. The plaintiff was a devastatingly honest and straightforward witness whose most memorable statement was, I don't really remember, sir, whether it was curved or not. I just walked into space. The lawyers, with their talk of ill-fitting shoes and their request that her feet be measured, were pathetic. At the discovery of the design architect, a shop drawing of the stair was produced, clearly illustrating the code violations. The stair was too wide not to have a center handrail. The architect of record had approved the drawing, as had the design architect, whose stamp was on the drawing. It was clear now that the design-only architect had not only seen the drawing, but had also approved it. They were caught in a web. It also came to light that they had made site visits, indicating a much more hands-on role than they had first admitted. The emergence of this fact was not due to intentional misdirection, but the result of one simple fact. Large firms tend to be compartmentalized, with one specialist team possibly neglecting to share seemingly trivial details with other specialist teams involved in the same project. This discovery could have been minimized, to some extent. Claiming, for example, that their involvement was aesthetic only and merely a continuation of the design role, etc., etc., but at this point, Prodemnity decided that here was a case that needed some sense knocked into it. To begin with, the staircase violated the building code, and Mega Mall had already installed a central balustrade, so any defense argument that the handrail was unnecessary was a non-starter. Second, any court would clearly sympathize with Mrs. Gubbins, an elderly grandmother, salt of the earth, not out to make a killing. Third, whatever the clinic officially said, it was wrong not to escort an elderly person to the elevator, especially one in shaky condition. Finally, it was not in anyone's interest to try to bury the case in legal costs. The matter could be settled now for half the amount that the legal fees would amount to if it went to trial. In the end, all defendants were persuaded to contribute a modest sum. Mrs. Gubbins settled, sadly, her legal fees swallowed half her settlement. This was not a hugely complicated case. Personal injury cases can so often involve millions of dollars being sought in compensation. There are lost wages and future earnings to consider, not to mention loss of enjoyment of life, pain and suffering, and mental anguish. Then, there are the costs of surgical or medical treatment, physical rehabilitation, wellness therapy, home care, and accessibility renovations. With this in mind, there are several valuable lessons to be learned from this story. Lesson number one, architects may seek to limit their scope of work contractually by undertaking discrete tasks and being paid accordingly, but their liability for the work may not be limited to the same extent. Partial services can often serve as an open invitation for claims that are based on areas not in the architect's contracted scope. Lesson number two, remember that your duty of care extends to those who will ultimately make use of your buildings and spaces. The contractual relationship with your client will not be of the slightest interest to a third party. Lesson number three, sometimes the human factor has more legal weight than any professional or contractual considerations. Being a professional means doing the right thing. In this case, 
That should have been clear to all parties from the start. In the final analysis, it's the architect's actions, not the contract, that are the governing factor. Lesson number four. When your work depends on work done in collaboration with another firm, do your due diligence on the work that they are presenting to you. Their missteps, however small, may become your responsibility. Lesson number five. Always give serious consideration to spiking up your insurance limits, especially on projects where the scope, size, and risk factors warrant. Reach out to ProDemnity with any risk or liability questions you might have. In our next story, an architect commits a collection of small errors on an extravagant renovation project, causing her client to invoke the wrath of God. The story asks the question, can a pastor, a septic field, a circular driveway, a classical portico, and a tennis court all coexist? Apparently not. We call this story the Portico Fiasco. Pastor Love is the wealthy leader of the Church of Heaven religious community. Befitting his station, he purchased a mansion in the Niagara region, an impressive residence on a corner lot with a grand entry and a circular driveway off one street and a large side yard on the other. The pastor wished to install a tennis court in his side yard, but in order to do so, his front entrance would have to be relocated from one street to the other. The septic field and a circular driveway also had to be relocated. And just as important, he wished for a more impressive front entrance. A classical portico would do nicely. In his claim, the pastor stated that his wishes had been totally frustrated by the performance of the architect, Marsha Meanwell. He had watched his paved driveway being dug up, his beautiful lawn destroyed to remove the septic field, and his house replanned, so that the front door now faced onto the street with the circular driveway. This last requirement had meant a total interior makeover, including the main stair, and had involved six months' disruption at an enormous expense. All of this in order to realize another of his extravagant dreams, having his own tennis court. As it turned out, the architect had made an unfortunate miscalculation. The client could not have his tennis court after all. The zoning didn't allow it. To add insult to injury, the portico was a complete fiasco. The pastor had imagined a dignified entrance, in keeping with his position. He had requested a classical design in the Doric style, the acme of tasteful, simple architectural understatement. But instead of a refined elegance, what he had got was a vulgar, unclassical pastiche, better suited to the temple of Karnak, or a theme park in a developing country. As if this weren't enough, Another complication had occurred during the work. The site boundaries had not been properly located and marked, so part of the relocated septic field encroached on an adjacent property. As a result, it had to be completely ripped up and re-relocated. The architect's defense was straightforward. She had taken her design proposal to the building official and, based on the comments the official had made, she had revised her plans. But it was actually the contractor who had obtained the building permit, 
and there was never any mention of a problem with the tennis court. It wasn't that the court couldn't be built in the side yard. There was plenty of room for it. The problem was that there was a four-foot height restriction on fences at the street line. So, the pastor could have his tennis court as long as he didn't mind that the fence on two sides was barely higher than the net. As for the portico, the architect had chosen the closest thing to Doric columns she could find in the Chicago Metal Supplier's catalog. Yes, she agreed. The result was disappointing, but the portico's sad appearance had more to do with the poor workmanship than with architectural character. The problem with the septic field was easy to explain. It was the fault of the septic field contractors. If they had produced a layout plan, it would certainly have alerted the architect to the fact that the septic field was too large to fit on the lot. Pro Denmerty considered several options for a convincing defense. However, one option seemed out of the question, accommodation. Thanks to the unfolding of these catastrophes, there was clearly no longer any spirit of cooperation between architect and client. The pastor had rejected the idea of switching the driveway and septic field locations, even though this change would have made it possible to build a modified but usable tennis court, because his grand new portico required an impressive approach. There was nothing of the original concept that could be saved. So, in the end, the septic field was relocated once again, the bulbous columns replaced with more classical forms, the tennis court grassed over, and the new circular driveway installed as planned. The cost of this remedial work had been documented, and a lien placed by the contractor had already been settled prior to Prodemnity's involvement. Together, these things had the disadvantage of undercutting any arguments relating to inflated dollar amounts that we might have produced. If we tried to argue that the contractor had overcharged, or that the additional work had resulted in a betterment, or in other words, a higher quality product than what was paid for, the judge at our trial would have had to say, in effect, the previous lien judge had erred. This was unlikely. In attempting to reach a settlement, there were three factors to consider. First, in the architect's view, the building official should have told her about the fence height restrictions. However, zoning was not the same department as planning, and anyway, there was nothing to stop the playing of tennis, only that all shots would have to be kept extremely low. Second, septic field calculations and dimensioned plans are usually produced for the Ministry of the Environment and the local health department. To meet their specific requirements, the architect's only duty was to locate the perimeter boundaries and, in this sole task, the architect had failed. Third, the portico columns were defensible on the grounds that their selection was a matter of taste. The pastor had not put his column specifications in writing. Classically proportioned columns with correct fluting, base, and capital were only assumed. However, for obvious reasons, it would be difficult for an architect to argue that the pastor was wrong. The architect felt that she was being badly treated by the legal system, but there was little enthusiasm for allowing this matter to proceed to trial. The pastor, whose religious leanings appeared to favor a wrath-of-God approach, had thrown in punitive and other special damages, but he settled for turn-the-other-cheek 
when it came to provable out-of-pocket hard costs. Prodemnity, therefore, settled in accordance with the architect's policy. It doesn't always take a big error to generate a claim. Small mistakes can add up. In this story, a little forethought may have preserved the client's faith in his architect and avoided an expensive calamity. Lesson number one. Check the applicable zoning bylaws before you start designing. How often does one see tennis court fences on the street line? Corner lots have special criteria in many jurisdictions. In consideration of sight lines for traffic, setback regulations, definitions of front and side yard, and so on, the architect could certainly have checked matters out more carefully. Lesson number two. Be sure the property boundaries are located and staked out. Septic fields can be tricky, and they have caused more than one claim in Prodemnity's time. Lesson number three. When it comes to matters of taste, consider your client's dreams and aspirations. The portico fiasco was more farce than tragedy. And the same could really be said about the whole case, except that the money paid was no joke. Thanks for listening to this edition of Claim Stories. We hope it was instructive and entertaining as well as cautionary. Remember that every jurisdiction and every case is different. Always refer to the laws and regulations governing your local jurisdiction and consult a legal, architectural, and insurance professional about the unique circumstances of your own case. The Prodemnity Claim Stories were originally written by David Croft. The audio episodes are read by Liam Gadsby and produced by Revelator Studio Toronto. The publisher and executive producer of the written stories and audio episodes is Prodemnity Insurance Company Toronto. For more information, including the full legal disclaimer, visit Prodemnity.com. <laughs>